This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Michael Lanspa, thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today we're going to discuss an article by Drs. Pratik Sinha and David Forfaro entitled Latent Class Analysis Reveals COVID-19 Related ARDS Subgroups with Differential Responses to Corticosteroids. I'm joined today by one of the lead authors of the study, Dr. Pratik Sinha. Dr. Sinha is a physician scientist and assistant professor of anesthesiology in the Division of Critical Care and the Division of Clinical and Translational Research at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Michael, it's a pleasure. So your study identified two different subgroups of patients with COVID-19 related ARDS using a technique called latent class analysis. And you found that they had different responses to steroids. Can you tell us exactly what is latent class analysis? Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, before I do, actually, I just want to acknowledge my uh, co-authors, David Fafaro, Max O'Donnell, um, Dan Brody, who are all from Columbia. Dave, Dave is now, of course, at um, Harvard Medical School, and Carolyn Calfi at UCSF, and many others who have contributed to this. So let's get back to your question about what latent class analysis is. Uh, so latent class analysis is a form of mixture modeling. Um, LCA works on the assumption that in an unobserved multivariate distribution in a population, concealed within it are a finite um, observed mixture of underlying distributions. So what do all those words mean? Um, essentially, it's all in the name. And what it says is that in a given um, distribution of a population, the assumption that this um, algorithm, these um, algorithms make is that there are some hidden latent unobserved classes within it that define the population into subgroups. And really what um, we do with latent class analysis is that uh, we form multiple models to fit the population. Um, model one would comprise of one model, model two of um, two classes, model three of three classes, and so on and so forth. Um, and we decide which of those models best describe our population. To put it quite simply, really, um, it's, it's a uh, sort of a probabilistic approach to identifying clusters within a population. So there's a lot of different ways to identify clusters. There's a lot of traditional analytic approaches. What's the big advantage of using this latent class analysis approach over those? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. Um, and to an extent, sort of, uh, I'm somewhat biased because we use it quite a lot in our work. Um, but having said that, one of the fundamental differences between latent class analysis and other clustering algorithms is that LCA is based on statistical principles. Um, it, is, it generates probabilities, and because it fits models, you essentially generate fit statistics, which means actually you're able to test hypotheses, i.e. generate p-values. So in, in many respects, the metrics by which we determine which, the, which is the best model is much more objective and based around statistics. And the model fitting has some underlying assumptions as a consequence of its statistical modeling, which we have to adhere to, which makes it slightly more robust and objective compared to other clustering algorithms, the popular ones of which are based around sort of distance, Euclidean distances, which coerces observations into clusters. Um, whereas here, you generate a probability 
from belonging to one class or the other. So it seems like that approach is less susceptible to some of my own biases or, you know, uh, or heuristics. Uh, let, let's talk about your study and how it relates to your prior work. You had done some prior work that had looked at non-COVID ARDS, and you had uh, done latent class analysis on that. By way of background, can you tell us a bit about that prior work? Yeah, sure. So before I move on, I just sort of uh, a bit of self-plugging. But um, if uh, people who are listening to this podcast are interested in uh, knowing a little bit about latent class analysis, we have a a manuscript which um, I I wrote together with Carolyn Calfee and Kevin DeLuke, which is a practitioner's guide to latent class analysis. And really, that particular document I wrote after having spent many years in Carolyn's lab. And I thought, what's a document I would have liked to have had on day one when I walked into this lab. And essentially that's the framework with which we produced this. So if you want to check it out, it's in critical care medicine. I know I'm plugging something outside of the ATS family, but uh, forgive me for that. Uh, so to answer your question, in terms of the ARDS subphenotypes that we have described, um, this work has sort of uh, largely been driven by the brilliant Carolyn Calfi, who's been my mentor for many years. Uh, and what we did was we applied latent class analysis to um, initially randomized controlled trial population, secondary analysis of randomized controlled trials of, of ARDS. And in terms of the partitioning variables that we use, the things that actually separate out the classes, we used a composite of clinical variables such as um, vital signs, demographics, lab values, ARDS risk factors, but also to add a little bit of complexity um, in terms of the biological information that we're using to separate out these populations, we threw in a bunch of protein biomarkers, um, serum protein biomarkers, which were informative of ARDS pathophysiology. Um, And based on that, we have consistently identified two phenotypes of ARDS, the hypo and hyperinflammatory phenotype. The hyperinflammatory phenotype is called such because it is associated with the higher levels of pro-inflammatory circulating pro-inflammatory biomarkers, higher creatinine, bilirubin, more um, higher prevalence of shock, increased vasopressor use, um, and accordingly, obviously mortality in the hyperinflammatory phenotype Um, is higher and is associated with fewer ventilator-free days. In terms of its robustness and reproducibility, we've now demonstrated it across seven independent cohorts, five of which are randomized controlled trials, two of which are um, in observational cohorts, and it's totaling over 4,000 patients. Um, uh, And I guess one of the reasons why people were interested in these models is because in in three of the randomized controlled trials, we have shown differential responses to the randomized intervention um, with the subphenotypes. Uh, um, and these were all prior negative trials. So I think that's why people, people have been interested in it. Yeah, I think this has a lot of excitement for future trial design as well. Let, let's move on to your study, the, the current one in the Blue Journal. You studied about 500 patients with COVID and ARDS. Can you tell me a little bit more about the actual study population? Yeah, um, so the study uh, population, uh, there were 483 patients. They were all uh, derived from uh, Columbia University Medical Center and its affiliates. All patients were admitted to the ICU. And the data were all collected from an eight-week time period. Uh, and just to, uh, to put that into context, 483, what were actually very sick patients um, with severe respiratory failure, multi-organ failure, in that concentrated period of time, just gives you an idea 
about where that hospital system were, was in terms of its surge in the pandemic. It was um, it was very early on, and um, I think that's a limitation and a caveat, which uh, I will repeatedly emphasize, and if I don't, I would be happy for you to do so. There are two points I'm making. Number one, these were very sick patients in a very concentrated period of time that were all admitted into the ICU with multi-organ failure. But also I want to re-emphasize what an amazing effort it is by my colleagues who were very kind to share these data with us, that they managed to collect all of this information whilst serving the local population in difficult conditions. And to that note, actually, all of the patients in our study were not only sort of SARS-CoV-2 PCR positive, but they also had been diagnosed um, by board certified um, physicians as having ARDS. Um, we were also able to follow up our patients. Our primary outcome was, uh, was um, 90 day mortality. Um, and the other amazing thing about this is that generally the missingness in the data that was collected was very low, which um, was hugely advantageous when it comes to some of the um, analysis, which I'm sure we'll talk about downstream. Yeah, so I, I think it, you emphasize a key point there about this taking place early on in the pandemic in um, a very stressed hospital system. I'm curious how much we might be able to generalize about this since changes in treatment have occurred substantially since early 2020, including practices where we were intubating everyone fairly early on uh, compared to now, and we, we probably gave less glucocorticoids. I mean, do you have any speculation about how relevant this is to current ARDS patients? Yeah, that's a, a really great question. Um, and I think the implications of that question maybe reaches beyond just our study, actually. Um, there are many factors which have sort of reared themselves as we have gone along in this pandemic, which shows that there are elements of temporal variance, which maybe goes beyond simple biology um, and virus-driven disease, um, some of which it's it's to my mind at least, has made it very difficult to translate some of the data that we're seeing. Specifically, I agree that um, the context of this being very early in the pandemic and in the middle of a surge, and the fact that since the information that uh, we present here, practices have changed quite markedly, I think we should be very cautious when trying to generalize the information in this manuscript. However, having said all of those things, if you look at the baseline characteristics of these patients, all we are saying is that these patients were actually probably very, very sick. The evidence of multi-organ failure in this cohort is actually much higher than I have seen in any of the other COVID-19 cohorts that I've had access to. And, and I've now had access to thousands and thousands of patients. So, you know, in, in that sense, this is a, a, a very unique population of very sick patients, whether it's because this was a tertiary center or whether it is because it was in the middle of a pandemic and patients were presenting to the hospital quite late. Um, I would emphasize that the time from hospital presentation to intubation and um, enrollment into the study was actually fairly low. I think the median was one day and most patients were within three days of admission. So I don't know what those factors are, but certainly I think it, it's, um, it would be judicious to be cautious here when interpreting and generalizing it. I agree. I wanted to follow up on your comment about uh, Columbia being a tertiary center. I noticed that you had excluded patients in analysis uh, that were transferred from other institutions. What was the rationale for that? 
Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's another good question. Those patients were excluded mostly because um, we had issues about um, verifying the data that were being collected, the validity of the data from the patients who had been transferred into the institution was um, somewhat dubious and it was incomplete. And because we were uncertain about its validity, we didn't want to um, include it in, in what was otherwise a very in-depth and very well-curated cohort of patients. Yeah, the data is very rich. I'm surprised at how much detail was uh, collected from the clinical data. That's just normal for the electronic medical record. One of the tests, however, uh, IL-6 was handled a little bit differently uh, in your analysis. Can you explain uh, how you guys approached IL-6? Yeah, so um, for those people who are familiar with our prior work, um, IL-6, interleukin-6, is a, it's an important predictor of um, phenotypes in our prior ARDS phenotypes. So that was one of the, value, um, one of the variables that we thought um, would be quite useful to have. Now, when the lab IL-6 were collected, they were missing in quite a lot of patients. So in order to uh, try and complete that and have a have the numbers that were reasonable to include into our latent class analysis, we um, subsequently measured IL-6 from stored bank samples. How did you guys handle other missing data? Yeah, so um, it, it's worth emphasizing again that missingness was actually remarkably low um, and actually uh, my experiences of uh, other cohorts since then uh, have shown how spoiled we were with um, my colleagues from Columbia doing such an amazing job in, in putting this all together. So our approach to missingness, uh, so for latent class analysis, we used um, its inbuilt um, uh, procedure towards dealing with missingness. It's, it's uh, something called full information, maximum likelihood, and essentially it incorporates the missingness in trying to set the model parameters when predicting um, which patients belong into which class. And similarly, the machine learning models that we built also, um, we used XGBoost, um, which is a gradient boosted boosting algorithm, and that also has an inherent inbuilt uh, um, inbuilt approach to dealing with missingness. So in, it, essentially, we just used the uh, inbuilt features for the algorithms to deal with missingness. So in trying to build these models, what interventions and outcomes did you look at? Yes, yeah, so the outcomes, we wanted to um, provide something that was informative um, beyond, because a lot of the data that had been that had been out in the literature at the point when we first embarked on this uh, on this study, we wanted to leverage um, the uniqueness of this data set. And one of it was that it was very complete. Um, and the second thing was that um, we emphasized the fact that we wanted to collect slightly longer term um, outcome data. So we here, our primary outcome was uh, um, vital status at day 90. Um, but we also had information for uh, secondary outcomes, which was outcomes at um, 180 days. We also looked at outcomes at 28 days and uh, ventilated free days was, uh, was another um, secondary outcome in this population. It, it's, uh, at the time it was very surprising, but now probably from our experience, not so much, but uh, the median uh, ventilator free days in this population was zero. Um, so oh, half the patients were on the ventilator for four weeks, which, uh, which you know, when we first saw the data seemed, seemed remarkable, but, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, um, congruous with, the, with our uh, experiences since. 
let's talk about how you fit your actual models to these uh, classes here. So like, how did you decide on the number of classes? How do you actually perform the analysis? So we decided because there were 483 patients that um, a bin of 80 or so patients in each group, 80 to 90 patients was reasonable. So we decided we would fit models comprising of one, five models comprising of one to five classes. So one class, two class, three class, and so on and so forth. Um, and when we fit those um, classes in, we use a standard approach towards deciding which one is the best. We use fit statistics, specifically we use the Bayesian information criteria. Um, and here we plot the criteria and see whether or not there's a clear elbow, i.e. there's a big decrease. As your models fit better, your BIC goes down. And so we see where is the biggest step in our BIC. We use a metric called entropy, which is a measure of class separation. And uh, entropy of around 0.8 seems uh, a reasonable value to say, actually, the classes are well separated. We don't use the absolute number of the entropy. We just use 0.8 as a somewhere around 0.8 as a, as a sort of a benchmark of whether or not the models are, um, whether the classes are well separated. And then we use uh, uh, statistical testing, um, Vuonglo Mendel Rubin test, which generates p-values to see whether a model comprising of k classes is better than a model of k minus one class. So to put simply whether two classes are better than one, three classes are better than two, and so on and so forth. And finally, if we have a, a, a model um, which has a class where the numbers are too small, roughly about 10%, uh, less than 10% of the total population, then we think it may not be clinically useful. And that sort of, we take, we take marks off that particular model. So with all of those metrics put together, it was fairly unambiguous here that the two class model best fit this population. Right. So uh, you had mentioned BIC or the Bayesian information criteria. That's just simply a tool or a test to help stratify whether or not your model fits well. Is that correct? That's or, right. Yeah. I'm curious, like as far as how you a priori select the number of classes, is that just kind of picked out of a hat then and then use these tools to help narrow down? Or is there an advantage to starting big or starting small? Yeah. So you, um, there is no... Um, sort of hard and fast rule. Um, there is, of course, uh, some underlying, and this is where it becomes, not, you know, not completely unbiased. We choose how many how many models we will pick and how many classes each, each model will have. Generally, the rule that we have been following is that um, we ask ourselves if we were to divide the number of classes evenly by the population, what is the smallest acceptable class that we would have? Generally, if you've got classes, each class with less than 100 patients and your total population size is 500, then you're start, starting to question um, how useful those classes will be. And the other thing to note is that the more complex your model is, i.e. the more class solutions that the model has, the more you increase it, the more and more specific it becomes to that cohort where you're testing the models. So that's the other, other, other downstream problem that you will face. It's trans, clinical translatability becomes less as the models become more complicated. 
Right. Yeah. I could imagine that you could be extremely accurate if you had what 495 classes or so, or 480. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. Well, I think that's how we operate actually as, uh, as intensive care physicians, you know, um, which is why I think some of this work is very intuitive because as we do our rounds, we do break down our patients into some kind of uh, individual phenotype that uh, we think they are. Um, we just don't have a way to articulate it or measure it. So let's let's talk about the two classes you identified, which overlap somewhat with the uh, prior two classes that you had identified non-COVID IRDS. But can you describe what those classes are in your study? Yeah. So um, in terms of their uh, biochemical characteristics, I would say that the uh, the classes were quite similar, as you mentioned, to our previous ARDS phenotypes. Having said that, we did not have the protein biomarkers to, to split these population apart from IL-6. So uh, the variables that we did use were um, things like lactate, LDH, troponin, procalcitonin, um, and also some of the more sort of standard routine bi um, biomarkers, which we use um, lab biomarkers such as creatinine, bilirubin, bicarbonate, albumin. Um, and of course, there were the vital signs, which also uh, which also overlap with the things that we have used previously. Um, in addition to those, we also use cycle thresholds of the um, RT-PCR. Um, and the class two, which uh, was correspondent with the hyperinflammatory phenotype, was associated with higher levels of lactate, higher levels of troponin, high levels of procalcitonin, um, and high levels of creatinine. Conversely, it had lower levels of bicarbonate and albumin and higher vasopressor use and uh, lower blood pressure, which again is consistent with the hyperinflammatory phenotype. How do you classify these subgroups according to the previous non-COVID uh, ARDS subgroups? Yeah, so uh, what we did was we applied a previously developed machine learning model using XGBoost, which was published in the Blue Journal in 2020. This was work that I did with uh, Matt Chirpik from University of Wisconsin um, in Madison and Carolyn Calfi. And we described um, a clinical classifier model that were able to classify the hypo and hyperinflammatory phenotypes based only on clinical variables. Um, and specifically here, we used a model that only used vital signs and laboratory values. And with that, we generated the probability of belonging to the hypo and hyperinflammatory phenotype, and we classified the patients based on those probabilities. And actually, the they corresponded very well. Class two corresponded very well with the hyperinflammatory phenotype. The overlap was about eighty percent in in each of those um, phenotypes: so class one to hypo, and class two to hyper. And actually, that is pretty accurate because. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty even in latent class analysis derived phenotypes. So um, as far as trying to make sense of the overlap, we think that the, the classes, the new classes that we identified were just a more specific form of the hyperinflammatory. Class two was a more specific form of the hyperinflammatory phenotype. And that goes with the fact that mortality in class two was um, I think about 70 something percent 75%-ish, um, which is actually very high and higher than anything we've ever observed. Um, I, I, and I think that speaks to the fact that this was just a much more specific form of the hyperinflamed phenotype. Well, speaking of that high mortality, I noticed that one other interesting aspect of your study was that you tried to identify what were the most important variables for mortality. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? 
this the backdrop of this particular analysis which we developed um a priori in our analysis plan was that um in, in a previous study, we found that the prevalence of the hyperinflammatory phenotype was actually very low in uh, COVID-19 from so two very small cohorts from the United Kingdom that, that we, we investigated. So really what's um, going into this, we'd anticipated that we were going to find new phenotypes um, because um, of based on our clinical experiences and also that you know, primarily in COVID-19, what we were observing is that people were less inflamed. They were presenting primarily with single organ failure. Um, so in the absence of a validation cohort, what we thought in order to demonstrate that the prognostic value of the identified classes um, were unique, we would try and identify what are the predictors of mortality in this cohort that are independent from the classes that we've identified and again from that prior study that we um, that I, I talked about we found that things like the apache score and the sofa score actually didn't work very well in COVID 19 so we wanted to develop something that was specific to this cohort um, so we used the same variables that we put into our latent class analysis model in a um, supervised predictive model to try and predict the outcome and within that, we found that the top predictors in this supervised model were actually quite different from the variables that were the most important partitioning variables in latent class analysis. Um, specifically in the phenotypes, the ARDS phenotypes that we identified in, in this cohort, age was very similar between the two. There's no significant difference between the hyper and hypo inflammatory phenotype. Whereas in our supervised predictive model, age was by far the most important variable um, that predicted outcome. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that uh, you'd commented about how SOFA and Apache were less predictive for mortality than I think expected. But one thing that was also interesting was that you found that polymerase chain reaction cycle threshold or PCRCT appeared to be a fairly important predictor of outcome. I was wondering if you might Explain a little bit about that. This is a, a great question, and thank you for bringing it up. Uh, so, one of the other hypotheses that we had going into this, um, from also from our prior work, that we had noted that mortality in the hypoinflammatory phenotype from prior studies in um, in COVID nineteen was twice what we had noted in non-COVID-19 ARDS. And similarly, in the hyperinflammatory phenotype, the mortality was about 20% higher, which is borne out again in this study too. So really going into it, we were wondering whether actually um, viral activity is one of the main predictors of outcome in, uh, in COVID-19. So as a surrogate for that, and again, this goes, this speaks to the volumes of uh, our colleagues at uh, Columbia who managed to put all of this together. We got um, the um, RT-PCR polymerase chain reaction, reverse natural polymerase chain reaction cycle threshold, which um, is basically the number of cycles it takes to reach the uh, fluorescence threshold for a positive test. So effectively, the fewer the cycles, the more generic, genetic materials floating around um, in your nasopharyngeal swab, suggesting that um, viral load is higher. So we essentially use it as surrogate for that. Interesting that um, cycle threshold in this population of very sick patients, right, with multi-organ failure, was um, an independent predictor of outcome after adjusting for uh, a number of uh, covariates. But what was more interesting, actually, 
was that in the hyperinflammatory phenotype, uh, the, uh, the CT values between um, survivors and non-survivors, there's no significant difference. And actually, this, um, high, this lower levels of CT predicting outcome was almost exclusively driven by the hypoinflammatory phenotype. Let's get down to the really interesting part about uh, steroids here. So what did you find out with uh, steroids and, and these two classes? Yes, yeah, so again, this must be very, very heavily caveated with the fact that um, these analyses were in, uh, in observational data and these weren't um, patients who were um, randomized to this treatment. So there are all manners of biases incorporated into this. Um, having said that, because um, steroid use is now essentially ubiquitous, it's very hard to test this hypothesis outside of it, which is why we thought it would be informative for the field for us to present it, even though there are great uh, methodological limitations. Anyhow, what we did was that we, we, put, we gathered the data to look at how many patients were treated with intravenous steroids during um, their admission. And what we then did was we looked for a treatment interaction among those people. I think steroid use was some, somewhere around approximately 65% of this population. So we, we looked in a logistic regression model with 90-day mortality as the outcome. We created an interaction term of uh, the subphenotypes and glucocorticosteroid use during their admission. And we found that there was a significant treatment interaction with a huge reduction of mortality in the hyperinflammatory phenotype and a, a, and a sort of a, a trend towards increased mortality in the hypoinflammatory phenotype. Um, I think it was um, mortality was 51% in those people who use steroids in the hypo compared to 46. And, uh, in the hyperinflammatory phenotype, the reduction was around 15%. I can't remember exactly what. Um, and this treatment interaction term was significant after adjusting for SOFA score, which we thought may reflect an indication of use bias. So we adjusted for SOFA score. So in that sense, what it says is that um, there is probably a specific population in which corticosteroids um, are, are useful. Um, and I think, you know, there may be a a population in which it might lead to harm, we don't know. I know you're not saying it, but this really is a nice piece to help explain the findings that we had in the recovery uh, dexamethasone study, where you saw presumably the sicker patients on a vent who had a potential benefit from steroids, whereas those who were uh, not really that sick and not, uh, not on oxygen uh, ended up actually having increased harm. And I also think this is really fascinating in trying to reconcile some of the controversial or conflicting data we see about steroids for just plain old pneumonia and how that's been a kind of a hot mess pre-COVID. Yeah, I think, you know, there is, uh, to my mind, the data are, are far from being unambiguous. I think there is a, a lot of heterogeneity, even just looking at it from a distance. And just to go back to uh, the stick with which you beat our study, you know, a lot of the recovery um, dexamethasone data happened very early on. Uh, and the, the patients in which there was harm, which was those patients who weren't treated with oxygen, well, what are the indications for oxygen therapy, uh, you know, in different countries? I've had the, um, I've had the good fortune to practice intensive care um, and emergency medicine in the UK 
in Australia um, and in the US. And let me tell you what's usual care in the UK would be considered unusual here and vice versa. So, you know, how do you interpret that data? And, and it's worthwhile pointing out that the only positive trials we've had without sort of Bayesian statistics, the positive trials that we've had have been mostly from the UK, both for dexamethasone and tocilizumab. So, you know, how do you generalize that into the states and vice versa? It's, um, I think it's still up for debate. Um, I think that, you know, I, in my practice, still would give people dexamethasone because that's the best evidence. Um, but it doesn't mean that we don't challenge the convention and say, hey, in this part of the pandemic now, some almost a year out of when that study was published, do we need to think about, do we need to be more sophisticated about who we offer this treatment to? I think that's really well said, although I, I, I do find this uh, so fascinating. I'm, I'm curious about how, how much data availability drives our identification of classes. You know, for example, both your current study and your previous study identified a phenotype that were fairly overlapping. And I'm wondering how much of that shaped by similarity of what sort of labs and clinical data we look at. For example, if we had astrological sign data put up in there, would we be you know, trending towards a different uh, class? How much of that is shaped by what data we, we plug into the model? Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Michael. I, I, and you know, we are hostage to, uh, to the data we put in. And I think it's very important to, to acknowledge that. Um, it's, it's important to acknowledge that uh, the reproducibility that I spoke earlier about, where in over 4,000 patients with ARDS, we have identified the same, data, um, the same two phenotypes. Well, actually, part of it is because we are putting in very similar data. Having said all of that, if the quantity of those data, those variables are different, and if there's variance from population to population, different phenotypes will emerge. By no means are these phenotypes the be-all and end-all. I think it's at the very start of this science. And to your point, actually, I think we need to start thinking about um, incorporating more diverse biological information into these models, dependent on what the information you want out to separate the population in. So, you know, I envisage somewhere down the line where we will be doing more informed clustering based on purely on markers of endothelial injury or purely on markers of epithelial injury or how about you know incorporating things like viral load into it when uh, when that measure becomes more sophisticated and so in that sense depending on what your research question is i think um i would i would urge investigators to to have uh, markers that are more focused towards that and the other thing to appreciate is that if you do put in a bunch of clinical data, you will get prognostically informative things. And that's, that might not be what you always want from this, right? Um, because we measure things that um, if the levels are either very high or very low, you know people do badly because we have uh, decades and decades of uh, consistent measurements on that. So in that sense, you know, we are very, very much hostage to it. And these are ultimately exercises in data science um, and they should be interpreted as such. So I know this is gonna be kind of uh, asking you to speculate a little bit, but there's a lot of COVID experts out there that are advocating that we should be testing for inflammatory markers. And some are even uh, recommending treatment based on inflammatory markers or uh, identification of a, a inflammatory phenotype. What are your thoughts about how we should apply your findings clinically? Yeah, so uh, that's, uh, that's a loaded question. You know, I, I think uh, 
let me start off from a slightly broader perspective. You know, I, I think if the treatment that you are proposing is biological, enriching the population to subgroups of, um, that are pertinent of, of the said biology kind of makes sense to me. But taking that philosophical and scientific idea and implementing it at the bedside is, uh, is a completely different ballgame. Um, and I, I think predictive enrichment is great. I think it is the future. How we go about doing it is, um, is interesting. For example, you could argue tocilizumab trial in, in the recovery group was um, to an extent predictively enriched. I think they only chose patients with a CRP of greater than 75. Uh, and we know that tocilizumab does reduce CRP, but whether that's mechanistically driven, to me, it's, it's highly, highly uncertain. Um, and, and to that end, actually, the, uh, the, the benefits are also, it, it's not a huge reduction in mortality in these patients. So I think, sure, we should be thinking about these things, but I would fundamentally say that these need to be tested prospectively in robust tri trials. Uh, and how those trials are conducted, I don't know. I'm a big fan of the placebo. Um, and I think if you're offering people a biological intervention, you should be giving people placebos because there are many things that change and that change our behavior. I'll give you an example of CRP, for example. In the UK, we measure CRP on everybody and have done so for decades. And if you see a patient's CRP coming down, you would be less likely to intubate them, for example. Similar thing with dexamethasone. If you give patients some steroids, they will, they will feel better. And when you ask them how you're feeling, they say a little bit better, you are less likely to put them on a ventilator compared to somebody who isn't given that. Um, and so those are sort of non, I'm just giving you an example. I'm not saying that this is what's happening, but I'm saying that there are some non-biological behavioral elements to this. Um, and to totally circumnavigate that, you need to have robust trials in which you can test these interventions. So with those robust trials, it seems that some of our ability to identify the classes uh, are dependent on what data we collect, and LCA seems to be useful at identifying populations that could be targeted for a trial. In those prospective trials or future studies, what variables do you wish we would also be checking that might be useful? Yeah, so that's a great question. I'm going to sort of circumnavigate it completely and just say, actually, I don't know what those variables are, but what I do know and I do implore people to do is just collect as many biospecimens as you can um, and from all compartments of the body that is um, feasible and, uh, and ethical and doesn't lead to harm. Because, you know, there are going to be, the field is exploding and there are going to be many discoveries that are made in the next decade, which I can't predict. But um, if we have the samples to collect it and, you know, I want to give a shout out to the foresight of um, the people who who did the um, NHLBI ARDS network trials and subsequently the PETAL trials, who collected all these specimens 20 years ago. And, you know, here we are making discoveries based on those now. So I, I'm not going to get bogged down into the specifics, but uh, I will say just let's 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 collect more specimens. So the uh, data scientist says we should get more data as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. So your findings, along with uh, trials like recovery dexamethasone, have suggested or demonstrated benefit of steroids in uh, certain populations of COVID-19 ARDS. And that also raises the question of whether we should re-explore that for non-COVID-19 ARDS. And curious what your thoughts on this are. 
Yeah, so uh, that's, again, an interesting point. And uh, look, steroids have been around for 50 years in, uh, in ARDS um, and, and elsewhere in critical illness. And clearly, there are some patients who benefit from it. Um, and if your question is, um, does our um, phenotyping schema offer a potential route? I think it's a, it's a very good question and something which we are working towards answering. Um, and uh, hopefully we may have some answers. I, I, I genuinely don't know what we're going to find, but we're, we're investigating it to see whether or not um, we can identify subgroups that might benefit from it. But I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a useful question, and I think it's, a, it's something that may have uh, serious clinical implement, uh, implications. The question, I guess, is how do we identify the phenotypes at the bedside? Um, we have, of course, described this machine learning model which uses just clinical data. We, we're unsure about its stability over time and that's something we need to work on. But also we have identified a parsimonious model um, which only uses two biomarkers and serum bicarbonate to identify these phenotypes. And the question is, is there a willingness and enough of a momentum for industry to develop point of care assays for these biomarkers. I think the technology almost certainly exists. It's whether or not there's a, a, a willingness for, for these companies to invest in this. And we can demonstrate that, um, that it's, we can make useful clinical decisions, life-saving decisions based on it. Well, I think that's very well said. I, I expect we're gonna see more and more of this uh, sort of uh, analytic approach to try to differentiate complex syndromes like sepsis and ARDS in, uh, in, in future critical care literature. So I'm, very excited to see what the future brings with that. I think this uh, concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Pratik Sinha, for a great discussion of both his paper and latent class analysis. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else that uh, you'll be producing in the uh, upcoming years. Uh, thank you, Dr. Sinha. Cool. Thank you very much, Fab. Thanks. Uh, this is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. <laughs>